Welcome back, guys. You're listening to the Watts Podcast, world of athletic therapy, training, and sports. I'm Luca, and I'm here along with Tyler, Joseph, and Richard. We're What's back up? at the CJLO studios for our eighth episode. Eight. Ooh. Ooh. Happy summer. And if you haven't checked out our other episodes, make sure to search us on uh, iTunes and Google Play Music. And Spotify. Spotify now, brand officially. Brand new. <laughs> That's a part of the, the podcast, too. Um, so it's the Watts Podcast with a double T. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our Podbean website. All right. So uh, international guest today. International. Tyler, do you yes. want to do the introduction? <laughs> yeah. So uh, guys, today we have uh, here with us uh, Lee Hill. Woo! So th- Lee, That's thank you me. very much for yeah. being here with us today. Uh, so he's from uh, Cape Town in South Africa. And That's so right. he's actually... Uh, come to Canada. He's been here for you said two years two now. Years now yeah. So yes, yeah, so he's been here for two years. And uh, so, uh, what well, we just kind of wanted to get to know, I guess, as a first question, uh, Lee, is just to introduce have yourself. you introduce yourself, your career path, sure. and what what brings you here to Canada. All right. So it's quite a nice story, actually. So about two and a two and a bit, nearly three years ago, um, I was the head coach of the UCT Swimming Club back in. Uh, in Cape Town, UCT is the University of Cape Town. Okay. So it's the oldest university in Africa. So well, it's c- cool. It's not bad. Cool. cool. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad start. Um, so one day I was coaching swimming. So I'll tell you a little bit about my partner. She's actually the reason why I came to Canada in the first place. Cute. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was coaching swimming uh, one Wednesday afternoon in December. So. In December, it is super hot. It's the summertime in the Southern Hemisphere. And I see this the swimmer swimming up and down with a classic like a Northern Hemisphere swimming style <laughs> that you can tell from a mile away if they've <laughs> trained in the Northern Hemisphere. It's all the straight arm, no catch type of, uh, type of thing for freestyle. Okay. Um, and she was wearing a Canadian cap. So halfway through, I was like, oh, hey, so do you want to... You know, come join the swimming squad. I see you really good. So I had no idea who it was. You know, her name is Valérie Cramaison. She's you know, a former Paralympian. Mm. And she was doing her stage at uh, the university. Very and cool. I was Very like, cool. well, do you want to join the team? And she ever so kindly declined and then asked me if I wanted to go grab a drink after <laughs> so uh, Even we better. could get to know each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So one of my best pickup line was actually, uh, hi, would you like to take part in my PhD study? <laughs> and and that, that was like the second opener. No to swimming, yes to PhD. <laughs> Got it. So uh, I grew up, yeah, so after, after that came to Canada, you know, I've been here for two years since May 2016, um, integrating somewhat well, learning French for the first time. Ooh. That's uh, it's a hard language. It's difficult considering that my only other language is Afrikaans, which is uh, super close to Dutch. Mm. So they're they're not even similar. similar Apparently, yeah. oh. Afrikaans <laughs> and uh, and Dutch was designed so that French people couldn't understand it. <laughs> oh, there's yeah. lots of <laughs> then that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of T's, J's, I's, E's, and K's just thrown into the mix, and mm. half the time no one knows what you're saying. That's cool. So, integrating here, I started a, uh, a certificate 
in French language at McGill, which helped me stay longer. And then now I'm applying for permanent residency and about to finish my thesis. So a little bit about how I got to the thesis part was I grew up in Cape Town. I was always a competitive swimmer, um, but was completely plagued with injuries throughout my entire career. And then when it came to university, I was like, all right, like all aspiring, uh, you know, you go to all boys school, you're a sportsman, you want to be an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was my dream. That was my dream. Right? <laughs> yeah. So just try and fix out, like fix the problem with my shoulder because I had chronic uh, tendonitis. Then I ended up tearing the supraspinatus oh. and that kind of ended my swimming career in uh, 2006. And I just I'd never really recovered. Like, and even now, there's still like Body. degeneration yeah. and, and things going on. I have calcific tendinopathy. It's it's a permanent problem. So I finished my undergrad in human biology and psychology because I didn't get into med school. It's okay. a little more competitive than I I anticipated. And considering that there's four med schools in in South Africa, and yeah. they take 200 per year. At, chances were pretty low yeah. okay yeah so then i took the bsc route and then i was like oh well i actually love one of my courses in exercise science and exercise physiology mm -hmm. i was like well if i don't get into med school at the end of my bachelor's then i'm just gonna i'll commit to that and didn't get into med school and then my career trajectory carried me on to exercise science where uh, i did uh, one of my thesis so it's difficult to explain because you you don't quite have the same degree system. The so honors, yeah. You're talking about the honors, yeah. Right. So I did an honors degree. It's a it's a one year a one year degree mm -hmm. plus onto right. your your bachelor's. Okay. okay. So is that basically yeah. like uh, over here instead of having? So we do have an honors program, but um, over there it's basically like the honors program would be the replacement of a master's over here, kind of. What was the it's honors mainly research? Yeah. So it's it's half and half. So it's kind of. The way I understood it is um, for the accountants and the mechanical engineering guys, you did a three-year, a four-year degree. And then if you were, if you got high enough grades, like your, your degree was upgraded to an honors, whereas okay. we finished our bachelor's and then you did an honors degree and you had to reapply as if you're going to university again, mm -hmm. you had to submit your CV. And then after your honors, then you can do a master's. But... To do a master's, you have to do an honors first. That's, that's okay. one of the prerequisites for the South African universities. Okay. Oh, no, they follow the, some, the Italian designation for, for universities that was created in like 1200 <laughs> AD or something like that. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. Can, can you access P like a PhD with just with the honors? Or no? no, unfortunately not. So like, the whole process, like what I did, is you know, I fast-tracked. So I started off with my master's and then the first part of my master's study actually then formed the chapters one and two of my PhD. So I upgraded and I skipped master's completely. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's why it's taken a little longer to finish my doctorate now rather than having done it the other way. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So after I fast-tracked my master's, now registered as a PhD student, the first little bit became my introduction lit review and experimental chapter one and then added on a whole lot of other chapters to make a phd and currently on 400 pages <laughs> there you go there you go yeah <laughs> so 
because I'd always had shoulder problems, I'd kind of always wondered, you know, what's the deal? You know, I train just as much as everyone else. We do between seven and 20 Ks a day, you know, with the, with the elite squad that I was with. But I was plagued with injuries, yeah. like shoulders give out all the time. Like they just never, even with physio, the rehabilitation, nothing kept them working, oh, okay. yeah. working nice. Well, what, what level were you swimming at? Was this for, for the university or? No, I swam, I swam nationally in high school and then nationally again at, at university. So I went to like all Africa games and, awesome. and things like that. I didn't get to go any higher than that because... Because uh, of the injuries, yeah, and I just I couldn't train as much as I needed to. Okay, so yeah, and then that's what actually got me interested. I had a lecture from one of my profs, who's now my supervisor, who said, "Well, musculoskeletal injuries are often there's a genetic basis for them." Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, I wonder if I have the genes that put me at risk yeah. for injury." And uh, you did your research. And that and that's <laughs> no, kind of what... Yeah, that makes... Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> that that kind of like yeah, gave me my research topic and I was like, yeah. all right, well, then that's the first part of my, my thesis, which is now entitled uh, The Genetic Basis for uh, Chronic Overuse and Acute Musculoskeletal Injuries. So my master's started off with doing swimmer shoulder, looking at the phenotype of you know, supraspinatus tendinopathy, which is the most common... Okay. And then to make it bigger, my supervisors informed that I had to compare different types of injuries. So then we looked at uh, the anterior cruciate ligament ruptures. Yeah. So try and see if there's in a... Swimmer? No, oh, okay. I wish in swimmers. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really yes, weird. You, get, you would have to wait like 25 years yeah. <laughs> to capture Honestly. all those ACL injuries. <laughs> but no, we looked at uh, a general pup. A general population mm -hmm. and then also a sporting population to see what's going on yeah and try and make the comparisons so i i specialize in looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms which are they're kind of like uh, they're tiny mutations that happen within your genes that kind of change the protein composition of uh so they can either make your well i should say the protein that i work on is collagen so i look mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. collagens type 1 to 12 which have all been previously shown to depending on what type of what subset of genes you have uh, either increase or decrease your risk of either achilles tendinopathy acl rupture there's a couple in the ankle and in the elbow and then i was the first one to look at the single nucleotide polymorphisms in uh, the shoulder okay and yeah, and so the mutations kind of will either make the the tendons or ligaments either thicker or thinner. It changes their elastic properties. So for me, you know, I wasn't allowed to test my own DNA because... <laughs> yeah, you could have been a subject for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> subject one, zero, zero, one. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I don't, but, you know, for ethical reasons, I... I asked if I was allowed to include myself in the in the study, and my supervisor said, "Well, if you want to break ethical guidelines, then <laughs> that's the way to go." <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, I had to leave myself out of the study. But I had lots of swimming friends who were full-on keen to take part and and see what happens. Awesome, yeah. cool. So since since we're already like full into the topic of your uh, PhD. Um, 
you want to tell us, uh, I guess, maybe a bit more details on the, what kind of maybe procedures you used to do your research and then hmm. like exactly how it happened over all these years and then the findings that you've, you've gotten? Sure. Be um, my pleasure. So the first part was, you know, the, the literature review. So I'll start with the masters cause that's mm-hmm. yeah. where all my research kind of, uh, kicked off. So what actually happened was I had did a massive lit review to try and uh, to try and pinpoint if anyone had ever done genetic research in the shoulder, mm-hmm. or specifically in the swimmer's shoulder phenotype. Um, no one had ever done it, but there's thousands of studies that say, well, ah, uh, swimmer's shoulder's a problem. Swimmer's shoulder's a problem. Uh, the incidence and prevalence rates are X, Y, and Z. So my first chapter of my thesis was actually a, a systematic review that looked at, that kind of tried to map all of the risk factors that had been previously associated with mm-hmm. with swimmer shoulder. And what we found was that most of the studies were not great. They were all cross-sectional, you know, so it kind of drops their, uh, their impact. But I suppose if enough cross-sectional studies are around, you can kind of improve their, uh, their your level of certainty that any one of the risk factors are associated with that, you know, the phenotype or the outcome. So one of the big ones that everyone knows is that if you have too much volume, if you train too much, you, you're going to be at risk for injury. Right. Mm-hmm. But Which makes be, sense, I guess. <laughs> but no one has ever done those, those volume studies like really well. Okay. okay. So that's certainly, uh, it kind of highlighted a lot of the gaps in the research that I know swimming researchers, it was super popular in the seventies and eighties and then kind of just fell out of uh, popularity from the nineties onwards. Um, I think it's probably because uh, swim teams and they began to guard their secrets a little more. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they want to give away their Olympic medal winning successes right, and right, right. things like that. And so then the next part was, all right, well, now I have to decide on a cohort. So how are we going to define the mechanism of injury? And so I sat down with orthopedic surgeons who had seen a lot of swimmers. Funny, it was the orthopedic surgeon that actually operated on me in 2006 to mm. repair my, uh, my superfinished tear. Yeah. And yeah, we, he said that the most common uh, presentation is either in the biceps tendinopathy or uh, or supraspinatus but because from the shoulder is such it's such a complex you know it's a multi multi-dimensional complex type of injury that there can be a lot of things that contribute as pain sensation from scapular dyskinesis yeah. to mm-hmm. uh, impingement type one impingement type two to a calcific tendinopathy to um, bursal side reactions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, do you guys uh, ever, like, in the like therapy, do you, have, do you ever learn about swimmer's shoulder or no? It's more, we, l- we don't learn it specifically as swimmer's shoulder. It's more just as subacromial acro- ap- impingement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the classic, yeah, the classic one. It's a... <coughs> It's impingement type one. It's like the mechanical impingement. Mm. So the surgeon said that's what my issue was, is that it 
the super spinators kept catching on the chromium mm -hmm. and then it just flayed like a piece of rope and eventually tore. Ah, I see. But uh, there's lots of biomechanical changes that you try and adapt to the pain and then that changes how your arm exists in space in the water yeah and then by moving out of the norm it also creates a problem inherent risk yeah yeah so i don't know what your guys have you do you ever see uh are you at the stage where you see patients and yeah. things yeah, like so that so we're going yeah. into our fourth year so we've done internships on the field so specifically with teams and we've done internships specifically in a clinic covering just uh the athletes in the clinic only so i'm um, like i've seen a fair amount of shoulder injuries um, and the shoulder is something that's really, really interesting to me also because I've had my fair share of shoulder issues too. Um, so always treating somebody, uh, with a, sh with, with a subacromial, uh, impingement, uh, dysfunction kind of thing. Something I'm always really, uh, I like to really be involved in it. And, uh, it's fun. It's fun to treat also because there's many different ways you could go yeah. at it. Yeah. It, it's super complex. I mean, the, the no two presentations are there's like there's similar overlap but like no two clinical presentations of sumo shoulder are the same there's always a, different a number of uh, contributing factors that change yeah. like you would assume that the guys who swim butterfly would be the most at risk more at risk but yeah. you it's actually the ones who do the most amount of strokes per uh, per session so it actually is the freestylers okay that are more at risk oh. huh yeah interesting so yeah, with these orthopedic surgeons, they're like, okay, well, this is what you have to watch out for. You have to watch out for pain in the front, pain over palpation over the the biceps tendon, and then a positive sign for the nearest yes, test or the, yes. the empty can. Yeah. Cool can yeah. So fortunately, I didn't have to do any of the, the clinical testing. So mm -hmm. what had happened was the orthopedic surgeons would get swimmers that would schedule appointments with them. And then when they arrived for their for their session, I would go and go and meet them, and then we would discuss the discuss the study, which is looking at the collagen gene variants and risk of swimmer shoulder, and if they met the criteria, i.e., they had uh, tendinopathy of the the supraspinatus, they were automatically included. Right. The criteria was the three tests you just mentioned. Yeah. So okay. broad, yeah, broadly. There's a there's there was Nia's test, Job's test. There was the palpation test. There's the apprehension sign. There was a a battery of six that had to be had to be covered okay. before they were automatically entered into. Because that were that ended up being such a slow process. Yeah. Waiting for swimmers. Then what I did was we opened the study up to looking at anyone who's had shoulder problems in the past. Um. You don't, so you didn't have to necessarily have one currently. So we looked at uh, at past injuries as well. And then all we did was we asked each of the participants to please bring their, if they could speak to their physio or their orthopedic surgeon and to get a copy of whatever their uh, diagnosis was exactly. And they brought it with to our meeting. Mm -hmm. And then that way we could also retrospectively confirm diagnosis. So one of the biggest issues was taking people who had injuries but then self-treated like this was oh. it's the hardest one to because oh yeah i had pain oh no pain <laughs> is here and they couldn't quite give you an exact yeah. exact you know diagnosis Impression or an exact or recall yeah. so 
ultimately they have to be let go from the study because we couldn't confirm a positive yeah. diagnosis, which is important for genetic studies because it has to be a either clinician diagnosed or at least um, diagnosed through some sort of other imaging, so either okay. sonography or MRI or X-ray, one of those okay. other ones. Cool. Uh, so once uh, they, so all these patients came in, uh, you did the bat. Uh, yeah, we did the the orthopod did the the testing battery, mm-hmm. and then and what was next? Then afterwards, that was the phone part. So I'm also a qualified phlebotomist. So what then, yeah. That? <laughs> so this, uh, so I was qualified to draw to take blood samples. Okay. So because all the DNA that we take is uh, all located in the white blood cells, that's okay. the only blood cell in the body that uh, that has a nucleus. Um, where all the DNA is housed. So afterwards, if they met the criteria, then took out my my <laughs> my needle set and <laughs> start, poking yeah, start poking around until you get something, get some, <laughs> some some magical crimson. <laughs> well, how how do you call that? Phleb- A phlebotomist, yeah, phlebotomy, phlebotomy. yeah, yeah. So we did offer uh, saliva testing and things like that, but compared so yeah blood draws for all the kids for the the vial for the needle and you know the cotton swabs and things it it costs like nothing it's like maybe a dollar fifty for a whole set for one person whereas a saliva swab was twenty five dollars per person so we started off offering both and then eventually we're like well actually we ran out of saliva it's like would you mind if it was blood <laughs> they're like yes no yes and you're like okay we'll just do blood and then sort it so then after that we would sit down and do a, a whole massive questionnaire until fortunately uh, as many of my participants can attest to it's it was close to 30 pages of questions of questions so it was like demographic data like their age their their weight their weighted injury if they had one previously they didn't if it was a retrospective injury analysis um race and then all the way down to uh what their swimming history was like how competitive were they how much did they train did they do other sports you know trying to minimize uh the all these all these variables that could be potential confounders and then eventually got to musculoskeletal history and then asked well what other injuries have you had mm. because there's a high likelihood if you yeah. you're already reporting for one type of injury Get the other one. you're gonna have other ones yeah. Yeah. yeah so what we found is people who uh, were who tested positive for all the genes relating to one shoulder injury but also had a shoulder injury independent of the genes so this is the multifactorial part of the uh, genetic studies. Yeah. So you could still have an injury and have multiple injuries everywhere else, but not have the genes that I specifically looked at of interest mm-hmm. that would affect your risk. Right. Yeah. How, how, did you fi- like, how did you spot the genes that were uh, responsible for so much shoulders? So that so that's the complex the complex part. So because I had an exercise science background, I did psych and I did human biology, you know, I had a pretty good understanding of uh, the broad biomechanical and anatomical aspects of swimmer shoulder, but mm-hmm. I'd never done genetics. So I had to learn learn from scratch. 
so apparently what first kicked off the research was within the Col5A1 gene, there's a, a disorder, or actually even before that, it was the ABO blood type that increased your risk. Okay. But it's, that was inherited as a, a large section. So this is back in the 90s. And it was inherited as a large section. So the, if you test positive for one of the, the type of small mutations in this massive gene set that encompassed, uh, I couldn't even, chromosome 21? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Then there was a, a quite a large likelihood that you were at, you had an injury previously. It was associated. And then as uh, our ability to detect the actual uh, specific mutations improved, the, it then became, well, oh, you have Ehlers-Danlos, which is the, that musculoskeletal uh, disorder where you have hyperlax ligaments, like mm. the, your ligaments tend to be, tendons ligaments, most connected tissue tends to be very soft. You know Ehlers-Danlos? Well, I it know it's probably has another name. Yeah. Um, it's like hypermobile. Like yeah. It's, yeah. Hyper it's, exa okay. it's exactly like that. Or like Marfam's. It's like a very... Oh, Marfam's, yeah. It's a, it's a very similar type of uh, presentation. Okay. okay. And so then they found the Col5A1 gene was the one that was implicated. So Col5A1 actually regulates, helps to regulate something called fibrillogenesis, which is, yeah, which is the how thick or thin the diameter of tendons and ligaments are mm -hmm. so That's by cool. by forming certain types of uh, what they call collagen cross links it actually can change the the actual tissue properties of of your uh, most of your soft tissues so with Ehlers Danos they tend to lack one of the the genes it's kind of like a deletion of one of the genes which makes the their soft tissues exceptionally pliable Mm -hmm. It's kind of like this ligamentous hyperlaxity type thing, which affects with affects everything. So you're saying that like hi hypermobile people have, well, their co five I think co five A one you said that's the one gene that yeah. is not like expressed as yeah much as other people yeah and so because of that like that's where you're looking their for tendons yeah. are super uh, can be super lax yeah. lax okay cool so so that's what we ended up looking for is like as they honed in they were like col 501 all right then they looked at all the functional variants so every time your cell turns over you actually you inherit part of your part of the gene that is functional that actually plays a role in um it has an active role in creating the protein and then the non-functional area which is kind of the, the parts in between that tell the enzymes where to cut during replication. Mm -hmm. So for Col5A1, that was actually the first time that they had linked a functional variant. So someone had gone through an entire database worth of genes for Col5 and compared uh, mutations that occurred naturally in a general population and then came across a... Uh, single nucleotide polymorphism which is if you know in the dna it's it's like adenine thymine gu guanine, uh, guanine yeah. and cytosine yeah. so the single nucleotide polymorphism is a small switch in that base because so they found that what they call a ct switch so thymine was then replaced by cytosine so in this massive data set they found a tiny little mutation 
I was like, okay, well, let's see what what this has to do with uh, with maybe at at risk for knee injury, something like severe, like uh, Achilles uh, Achilles tendinopathy and anterior cruciate ligaments rupture. And then they found, oh, look at that. Depending on the type of uh, mutation that you had, actually increased your risk by up to four four times. So if you're a female and you had the CC variant, so there's three types of outcomes. You can mm-hmm. either have CC, CT, or TT. Right. Okay. You it affects your your risk majorly. So what we found is that people with the CC genotype it tended to have mm-hmm. much thinner uh, soft tissues. The diameter wasn't as uh, as great, and tended to be much more lax, right. much much greater flexibility, like inherently. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other side, if you had TT, then it's thicker stronger. and stronger. But the TT one was the one that actually created uh, created the risk, mm-hmm. because uh-huh. yeah. So what happens is that mm-hmm. when you have the thicker tendons and ligaments your the force production that's been able to be transferred uh transferred between the muscle and the bone is greater right which puts much more uh, stress on oh, on, on that area mm-hmm. and because it's thick there's a chance that it might not actually heal in the center part and there's much more tissue to heal okay. uh, <laughs> yeah that's so freaking cool <laughs> so that's for the achilles and for the acl but then in the shoulder what we found is that people with the CC genotype were at risk for swimmer shoulder. And that's probably because the when you do so many repetitions, so many repetitions, mm-hmm. and the muscles start to fatigue, there's, uh, you get sort of like a induced laxity in the joint, which mm. stops the joint from holding itself in the, in the glenoid uh, fossa. fossa. And then if they're not strong enough to hold that ball and socket, oh, okay. it tends to droop out. And then that change in biomechanics creates a increased impingement risk and things like that. So then your risk is then based on the type of exercise you do. Right. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I go over here. I don't know. But like, so you were saying for, for ACL and, and Achilles, it was CT that, that put you uh, oh, at higher. TT. Yeah. TT, sorry. Yeah. That put you at higher risk. Yeah. And for swimmer shoulder... It was CC. The, the elastic one, yeah. The so CC. I guess the best would be CT. CT would be the best, and that's that's the one that's uh, that occurs most often okay. in the in the general population. So would CC and TT be like an yeah. anomalies? Well, I guess you said they were mutations. Yeah, they're mutations, but you also have like a lot of natural mutations. So you could also have the either one of those three subsets, but then also never have an injury or always be injured. So this is the issue okay. that comes with like the, yeah. the genetic testing is that mm-hmm. we're like, oh, cool, we found a gene that's associated with risk, but then you have no 10 risk. other genes and you put oh, them okay. all together and then there's no risk. I see. So this is the, the issue that I've come up with now is that, you know, how do I tell what is a meaningful association and what is... Uh, Right, is yeah. it type two error, finding a false positive, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. What were you gonna say, Tyler? Earlier? Uh, no. Well, just based off that, he was gonna start to mention about kind of uh, that then factors into how you train the athletes. And I was 
that was starting to like create questions for me uh, in my mind is is that now you have this the swimming athlete uh you want to train him in the pool but i guess you also want to do dry land stuff with him too now yeah. to not have to deal with all those repetitions and then again you have swimming you have the long distances and you have the close the, 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 the shorter distances yeah. and so how do you go about training the athletes with that as well so that's kind of just things that were coming up are you are you going to open your company and uh, offer blood tests and <laughs> <laughs> so so that was actually like uh, one of the when i had started my my doctor i was like oh well you know how i sold it to my participants was like well we wanted to try and create a a test that you can do that we can we can look at your entire genetic profile and then kind of assess what what your risk is going to be for certain types of sports. So there's a lot of those at-home tests now that that use all these small studies like my studies will now contribute to and then make massive amounts of, uh, make massive claims. Are oh, you a power athlete or, mm-hmm. yeah. or not? So they're not that sensitive. But for injury, it's a... They're kind of a little bit better because uh, it's it's a clinical phenotype, and you can actually see when you when you test the person, you know, physically, and not just on a in a gene test. You can feel right. the laxity. You can so it kind of gives you a good a good feel of the person. But once again, that's in the absolute infancy. It's impossible to make a make any sort of causational. Yeah. So it's best used to then inform, well, oh, well, you might be at risk. So we could try and design something around that. Yeah. Yeah. As but opposed to for sure. yeah. you're at risk. And yeah. I can't wait for the day until it's going to be like, you have like an eight-year-old is like, here's a genetic <laughs> test. And here's it's your gonna be, you're going to be doing this, <laughs> that, that. Make sure you don't do that, that, <laughs> that, because you're going to be at risk. Oh, <laughs> Just yeah. like those little 23andMe yeah. Yeah. Little genetic tests. That's going to be it for little for kids sure. soon. And, that, I mean, and that's exactly it. Like that's so every one of the studies that I contribute now will each add to just the the global understanding, the growing of, body of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like so many, like I remember watching, like following so many like YouTube, uh, like fitness YouTubers, and they would like some of them would uh, would always like get in touch with companies that do that genetic testing, yeah. and they would al- always advertise for it. But obviously, it's not. It's never really, uh, you know. Uh, I guess all or nothing. Yeah. Like you said. And like how, uh, so I read a recent study now that said that all those, uh, those at home testing things, they, so obviously they know what they're testing for. You know, mm-hmm. they know what, what genes they're, they're looking at and what the, what they're kind of associated with previously. But they now say that, well, the, they're actually pretty racist because the companies then cherry pick which results to tell you based on your age, your ethnicity, like things like that. So instead of giving you your entire, your entire profile and be like, well, this is what some of these genes mean. They kind of like, Oh, well, because you're white, they just pick out which ones they want to show you. Okay. So it's never, it never gives you a full picture of, uh, of what your risk is. And that's why I like, it's kind of irresponsible at the moment to do those okay. those at-home testing kits. Right. Because so don't do them, people. <laughs> yeah. That's you'll, the message. You'll waste your money. They're like, what, $400? Yeah, they're really expensive. Something. It's, wow. yeah. Yeah. 
It's a oh. bit of a bit of a nightmare. Huh. Yeah. So and then that yeah that was my master's study. That's super cool. Wow. Super yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah this is why it takes uh, it takes five years to to accumulate yeah, to accumulate uh, all this data to look at. I wanted to know going back to your bachelor's uh, it was in human physiology but did you did you how much did you have um, how much did you learn about strength and conditioning? Good question. Actually, next to none. Okay. Yeah. So it was kind of expected that you do uh, the CSCS, you know, the, the certified strength and conditioning through the National Strength and Conditioning Association, um, or one of the personal trainer ones. So most of our my bachelor's was actually focused on on long distance athletes. So okay. we they kind of just left out the importance of, uh, of cross training, of strength and conditioning, of like the prehabilitation and rehabilitation processes and focused mostly on, well, these are the metabolic processes that happen when you run, when you lift, you know, when you, you do certain types of exercise, there's a muscle shift in that, you know, from type one to type yeah. two, but it was never anything specifically like, well, this is how you should actually do strength and conditioning training. It was mostly like, well, if you did it, this is wow. what would happen okay. at the molecular level. Okay. Yeah. So okay. it's more like it became more uh, exercise physiology than a degree. Uh, exercise okay. science. Yeah. Okay. So when you were, because I saw on your CV that you were a private consultant for a while, it was really just for swimming technique, I guess. Yeah. So I, because uh, most of my expertise, and I spent years and years and years in the pool, and I coached for nearly ten years as well at university level and at national level. Um, all of my thing came ab it came about trying to educate other coaches about other coaches in schools and anyone who is interested, if you're a swimmer as well, about uh, what was happening in the science of the swimming world, because. What what is the science of the swimming world? Yeah, so this is so this is it. So there's all these studies that are conducted in swimmers and things, but are are never ever given to the general public. public. It's it's kind of kept in the academic white tower, mm -hmm. and there's very few uh, few outlets for for knowledge translation. So some of the studies that uh, I spoke about with some of the swimmers who kind of knew what was going on, they're they were talking about studies that came out in the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like the one that says that if you're a good swimmer, you know, you have to be tall. But that has now kind of been put on the back burner. I wouldn't say refuted, but there's less evidence to support that being tall makes you a good swimmer. Now it's about limb length and yeah, arm span and, arm span and yeah. the golden ratios between the forearm and the humerus and... Yeah. Yeah, and that's this and that stuff came out in 2010. So it, it's it came more about trying to show people that well, actually, there's more to it than just the old school hammer your swimmer into the ground. Now there's the the USRPT, the ultra short race pace type of training. There's you know a myriad of training modalities available, and if you're gonna coach a, a freestyle swimmer, like you should do cross you know cross training in terms of other strokes because you know it makes them better 
at freestyle because you're working more muscles yeah. and you're not fatiguing the freestyle I'm muscles. I'm guessing the mentality the of most like older mentality coaches is like, well, if you're doing fly, <laughs> you're going to be doing just fly during just practice. Fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of it kind of felt like uh, you're pushing a, a brick up a hill because eventually you know, most of the old school coaches, they, they were super happy, set in their own their own way. Very few coaches were kind Willing of... to look at the research and what was new. Yeah. So, yeah. so then that's what I tried to like implement. I was like, well, let's look at what the coaches know and then how we can, I can at least give them some sort of like evidence-based um, knowledge translation of at least what's available, you know, distribute studies, okay. you know, try and describe the studies to them what it means why is it meaningful and okay that's really cool yeah. so you would just basically look at research that's applicable to swimmers and then was it was exactly it help out people with that yeah was it mostly like biomechanics type of research or was it i don't know it's a, a little bit of kinds? yeah a little bit of everything so like the the typical type of uh presentation that i would do would obviously start off with biomechanics because everyone has issues with their swimming stroke and they always want to know well how can i make my stroke better so you start off with simple biomechanics and then you slowly transition into other subjects other subjects okay what kind of other subjects so the next most asked question was well nutrition so then it's a little bit about swimming nutrition like what you need to refuel like during a practice during racing mm -hmm. and i had one of my friends who's a a registered dietitian in South Africa and she would come with to my my presentations and then we would discuss nutrition with with the swimmers because I also believe that one should stay kind of stay within your field of expertise and not overextend so because I'm not a, a dietitian or a nutritionist by trade you know it sense. would feel a little incorrect for me to give advice that wasn't in my expertise and then other things would be uh, uh, training modalities. So we'd look at, well, if you're a middle distance swimmer, there's no way that you can train the same as a sprinter, but that's not that you should leave out sprinting completely, but maybe you should shift um, your and periodize your program. You'd be surprised at how few coaches know what periodization is. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's like this brand new concept <laughs> And that, oh, you periodize your training um, and you have a training plan for the season. But no, they're all, most of them are like, all right, we're just going to hammer our guys. 14Ks, mm -hmm. 20Ks a day. And we're just going to every, every day until taper. And then during taper, you just stop. <laughs> no more, uh, no more training. But I feel like periodization too was like kept kind of secret for for a while. I for guess. a long time, yeah. Oh, secret is just people don't read research. Yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. Or more like, <laughs> as in like, uh, when research is done, uh, it's not translated properly for the general. Yeah, population. exactly. That's why I think like this avenue is great. Like as a high performance consultant, I think yeah. this is something also people in our program can do. It's like yeah, definitely. just read basic, like find your niche kind of thing. Yeah, find yeah. people that you can relate to easily. Yeah, like that you kind of already have like a clientele slash mar uh, market, and just read basic research and tell them what's Translated, new, what yeah. what's applicable. Right? Don't yeah, go too like much that. into genetic risk factors. I'd say, yeah, but I think so. <laughs> applicable to them i think it's a great it's a great idea and i was wondering how did you kind of start marketing yourself uh, so that so it kind of actually started off as i was busy taking uh um people to participate in my study then afterwards like we'd sit and we'd 
we discussed and discussed and discussed like we'd go through the questionnaire we'd talk about their training loads over the last 10 years we try and quantify like what type of training they did with who etc etc and then eventually they started asking more and more specific questions about training and about um stroke work and things like that and then they actually approached me to so through participating they kind of got this a uh, consultancy that came extra so i Another way to sell it is that, well, you take part in my study and I'll happily give you a free lesson in the swimming pool and we can talk about your stroke biomechanics. And then one person told their friend and then their friend contacted me to <laughs> ask for uh, advice. And then a We're coach, yeah. yeah, and then it kind of just disseminated like that. So it kind of caught like a wildfire. It was completely unintended. And then eventually people were paying me to, to talk. So did that become a business? Like, did yeah. you create a brand or yeah. what, what was it called? So it was nice and easy. Just Lee Hill <laughs> High Performance Swimming Consultant. Yeah, keep it simple. <laughs> nice. yeah. Doesn't need to more <laughs> doesn't need to be more complicated yeah. than that. So most of your clientele was what was it more individuals or did you actually have like bigger like organizations? Yeah. I'd say. So it did. It started off with individuals, and then eventually, there's a. It's kind of like in in how social networks work there's someone who's the influencer so you'll take a lot of individuals one at a time and then the influencer would be the one who says hey i actually met this really cool uh, sports scientist guy who works at the sports science institute um i just took part in a study you should definitely speak to him and so i had this one guy who then disseminated my email to his mailing list of uh, of swimming friends with like 200 plus people huh. and then within a month uh, it was nearly every day I had two or three uh, consultations with people because they were keen and then on that mailing list was someone who was the the head coach of a of a primary school um, in my area where I used to live and she's like well please would you come and do a like a weekend conference type thing on a Saturday Sunday you know give a lecture Saturday and then on Sunday we'll do like practicum sort of stuff and so i was like all right well that sounds good to me and then that's where it started and then after that they she recommended me to other schools and to other swimming coaches and then once i had kind of like this working client base then i felt confident enough to approach bigger organizations so i approached other universities larger more competitive swimming clubs and then just kind of put my feelers out to see uh well, are you interested in maybe some, you know, high performance things? Like, do you have questions about, you know, what's available in science at the moment? And maybe like things I can answer, you know, we can answer and we can sit and discuss. And then it evolved into that where we, really cool. we would have these like massive. Like seminars? Seminars, yeah. And awesome. people would show up and. Because I like the very interactive type of way. So there's a there would be a lecture for at least 30 minutes. And then we'd sit and we'd discuss. We'd sit in a round table kind of like this now. And we'd, we'd discuss. Yeah. Because everyone has like specific questions. No one just wants to listen to a lecture and then be like, okay, well, what do I do with this information now? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> then afterwards, I was like, well, you know, tell me. Like, let's, let's sit and discuss each one of your specific problems and if we have enough time, we can get to everyone. And if not, uh -huh. you know, 
send me an email and we can chat privately, etc. Uh. So the you were saying, uh, I guess we kind of went somewhere else. Oh, no problem. During those seminars, you would do for, start off with biomechanics. Yeah. And then the dietitian would come in. Yeah. And then what would be next? Then it would be, uh, then we'd talk about the training modalities. <coughs> Excuse me. Training modalities. Um, so different types of training. So it, it kind of geared towards like the type of... Uh, the type of audience so if i was talking to coaches then we'd look at like how to create a season plan mm -hmm. you know how to identify the types of swimmers that you have you know there's a lot of uh, types of test sets that you can do in the swimming pool and in the gym that will kind of indicate the type of swimmer that you have so if they're a sprinter then you can test out you know how their anaerobic training is going if you use this uh the four by 50 sprint test or if they're a long distance swimmer you can do the nine 200 step test or the seven 200 step test you know so it kind of gave them like these uh the techniques to be able to monitor their own swimmers you know and at least you know make their squads better mm -hmm. so one of the things that we believe in strongly is that you can't change what you don't monitor so if you see that your swimmer day to day is just slogging it out and you can't wait till the swim meet to see if your training's working. So then that's why we do the test sets, you know, in practice, after practice, once a week, mm. and you kind of work your, uh, how to use those results to design start times, to design a program mm -hmm. day to day. That's yeah. cool. It's kind of like, like that. Yeah, it's kind of like strength, strength and conditioning, but like, in the pool. In the pool. <laughs> so I wanted to know, what are your plans for after you finish all your research projects, postdoc, everything? Oh, gosh. So then it would be, I suppose they call it tenure track here to try and get an academic position at a university. That would be the gold standard nice. dream. As a, so as a teacher, you're saying? Yeah, because okay. I, I love teaching and I love doing research. And so doing, the bo you know, doing both would be absolute golden it would be ideal yeah back home or outside oh no it would be uh it would be canada for now and then potentially maybe the united kingdom maybe uh, i'm super interested in and in going overseas i'd love to maybe do a stage or do tenure track in australia at their mm. high performance center there in canberra that could be incredible but if that doesn't work out then certainly uh, i love doing swimming coaching and that would probably be the next uh, next best thing. A uh, question I have for you, Lee, now is, yeah. in your opinion, what is the most commonly overlooked or undervalued skill as a coach? Ah. So it's more of a access to scientific literature and the willingness to learn to learn new things. I think that's the probably the most overlooked attribute. Lots of coaches do you know, do their research, as you guys are, as have, you've said previously, they do their research, but a lot don't, or they don't have access to the research. And so I think that's mm -hmm. the biggest gap in, uh, in coaching at the moment, mm. is uh, finding a way to get access to the research and then understanding it in a meaningful way. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so this is cut. Um, 
I have a Co- few more questions. Oh, you still have yeah. questions? Okay. A bit random, but whatever. We'll go for them. No worries. Go for it. <laughs> so I want to know a bit more about South Africa. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> what are the Actually, popular yeah. sports in South Africa? <laughs> All right. So Rugby. South Africa has the the most popular sports. They call them the big three. And that would be rugby, cricket, and soccer. So being a former Commonwealth country, of course, it would be the Commonwealth sports. Uh Rugby is probably the largest, has the second largest following behind soccer. Most of the population plays soccer. It is the most accessible of all the sports. You just need a ball and a place to play. Yeah. But in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of, in terms of fun, I think I prefer rugby to soccer. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, by the way, England, England lost. Oh, two one, two one, Croatia. Oh, oh yeah. Watch the oh yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. A week later. Uh, Damn. <laughs> have you gotten the chance to watch any hockey? So, so this is I. I always ask the question, and it uh, irritates a lot of Canadians. I'm like, oh yeah. Do you mean hockey or ice hockey? So <laughs> as in field hockey? Yeah, so yeah. where I'm from, hockey is field hockey. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, ice hockey? They're like, no, it's just hockey here. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> hockey, yeah. So, yeah, what, I watched the... I used to watch quite a bit of hockey, uh, ice hockey. hockey. <laughs> <laughs> Back in, in Cape Town, uh, I used to watch the NHL. I used to love the, the Jersey Devils. Okay, nice. Just random, random team. <laughs> I happened to turn on the TV one day and I was like, oh, I like that team. It's my team. <laughs> it's my team now. <laughs> and yeah, so I don't follow it as uh, rigorously as I used to, but uh, whenever there's a game on at the bar, 100% uh, cool, pop nice. down for a, a cold one. Uh, so if present, you had to give advice to like maybe the uh, first year uh, you, what would it be? First year of your time of bachelor's? Yeah, yeah your bachelor's. Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. that That is a gold question. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be uh, try not to party too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I want. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, damn. damn. <laughs> Past me is going to kick myself in the ass. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would probably be uh, try and focus more on uh, on chemistry and maths. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, because at at the end of the day, like having a really good understanding of the biological principles of things that affect your body now, mm-hmm. as well as being able to compute them uh, biomechanically, you know, using MATLAB and those math programs are invaluable. Mm. And I kind of glossed over that in my first year. So <laughs> I, I think that would be my my retrospective advice to myself. And don't party too much. And don't party too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> Most All important. Right. Yeah. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up. Lee, <laughs> this is your chance to plug in all your details. You can go for it. All right, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's LeeHill89. It's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're an academic and interested in some of my research, you can uh, find me on ResearchGate. It's Lee underscore Hill 5. I don't have Instagram, unfortunately. Unfortunately. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your precious time. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Super interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So this, this, I guess this episode was more uh, a bit going a bit more, um, a bit deeper into uh, the research uh, subject and yeah. a bit more scientific than our other episodes. But I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will be super, uh, super stoked about hearing. A nice little variety on the research oh, yeah. process. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
Um, and of course, shout out to CJLO and Allison for Woo-hoo. providing us with an amazing studio to record these episodes. Uh, we wouldn't be here without them. If you haven't already, you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram, The Wads Podcast with a double T. And you can watch out for our upcoming episodes on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and Podbean. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you plug back into our next episode. Until then, stay beautiful. Stay beautiful, guys. Stay beautiful. I'm so happy.